A man sits down at a restaurant. He orders a drink, and as soon as he receives the drink, he throws it in the waiter's face. The man immediately says, oh, I'm sorry. I have a horrible compulsion. I can't help it. Whenever someone hands me a drink, I throw it in their face. I'm working hard to overcome it. Please forgive me. The man then asks, would you bring me another drink? The waiter says, do you promise not to throw it in my face? The man replies, I'm going to try to do everything I can not to throw it in your face. I'm really working hard to resist it. So the waiter leaves and comes back with another drink. He hands it to the man, and wouldn't you know it, the guy throws the drink in the waiter's face again. The waiter says, I thought you said you wouldn't do that. I know, the man responds, but this compulsion is so strong. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to check myself into an inpatient clinic and, and get some help because I really need some help. Forgive me. I am so, so sorry. And the man felt genuine guilt and sorrow. He checks himself into a clinic and for one month gets intense psychotherapy to deal with his compulsion. When he gets out of the clinic, the first thing he does is go back to that same restaurant and meets up with the same waiter and says, I'm cured. Give me a drink. (laughs) Well, the waiter's a little apprehensive, but he leaves and he comes back with a drink and the guy looks at it and he throws it in the waiter's face. I thought you were cured, the waiter screamed. I am cured, the man says. I still have the compulsion. I just don't feel guilty about it anymore. (laughs) You know, there's a lot of truth in that story. We might think the cure is to make ourselves not feel guilty. We may even try to look to find someone, even a counselor perhaps, who might tell us that what we're doing isn't so bad, isn't wrong. What should we do about our guilt? I mean, after all, who wants to go through their entire life loaded down with guilt? How do we guilt well? Shouldn't it lead to change behavior, change on the inside? Well, our passage this morning bears the mark of deep guilt. It bears the mark of an almost debilitating regret over sin. We see today how David's conscience is weighed down by the guilt of sin. As someone put it, conscience is the small, clear voice deep down inside of you where the acoustics are very bad. Guilt is to the conscience what pain is to the body. It tells us something is wrong. If we choose not to listen to the guilt, then it will take an enormous amount of energy and physical effort to ignore it. Where can we find relief for the grind of a guilty conscience? How do we guilt well? In other words, where do we go with the guilt inside? This is what we're looking at today in Psalm 51. Our time in the Psalms has been encouraging us to discover that God is greater than any problem we encounter in life. The problem described for us in Psalm 51 is is one's personal lament over sin. 
This is a tool that we must reach for in those times when, when we have blown it or in those times when we feel like a total failure or in those times when we're feeling loaded down by guilt. Do you figure that your sin is so great that you can't be forgiven? Psalm 51 shows us that God is greater than our guilt. God is greater than our guilt. If you're not there, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. You will notice, if your Bibles are open, that under the number of the psalm is an inscription introducing it. Notice what it says there, even before you get to verse 1, just under the title of Psalm 51. It says, for the director of music. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And that true story can be found in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and you can look there if you want. I'm going to help remind you of that dreadful season in the life of King David. I want to review it for you. It tells us there in 2 Samuel 11 that David got up from his couch and was walking on the roof of his house. He saw from his roof a woman bathing, and we are told that the woman was beautiful. That should have been the end of it for David. He didn't have to go any further, but David acted on his lust and sent someone to inquire about the woman. He was told that she was someone else's wife. That could have been the end of it right there. But he went a step further. David sent messengers to bring Bathsheba to him, and he slept with her. And to make matters more complicated, and sin always complicates things, Bathsheba was pregnant with David's child. He could have ended his relationship to sin right at that point. He could have owned his wrong. He could have been a man and done the right thing. He didn't. David, instead of fessing up, covered up. And so Operation Cover-Up is set in motion. David arranges to have Bathsheba's husband Uriah home from battle, hoping that he would sleep with his wife, and then she could just say the baby was her husband's. But Uriah was a better man than David. And even though David stayed back with the women when all the kings and all the other men were out in battle, Uriah was too noble to be with his wife even for one night when his comrades were out fighting. And so plan A hits the dumpster. Now David could have ended his relationship to his sin right there. David ignores his conscience. He blows right past his guilt to continue to plot his cover-up. He goes to plan B. He then sets it up to have Uriah killed in battle so that he could quickly marry Bathsheba, hoping no one would do the math and look as though the child born came to them as a happy married couple. The only commandment David is holding on to is, Thou shall not be found out. What a mess. And 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven has this to say about David's actions. It says, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. 
And I don't know about you, but to me, that seems kind of, uh, kind of a gross understatement. This sin grieves the Lord. Yet David continues to ignore the bad acoustics playing in his head. David chooses just to move on. I mean, after all, there's a country to run. There's national security matters to attend to. A new family that needed him. Here is his royal miscalculation. God refuses to do that. God won't just move on. And so God sends the prophet Nathan to David to confront him in his sin. We all need a person like Nathan in our lives. Nathan comes to David, you'll remember, but he doesn't go right up to David and get in his face and scream at him for what he's done. What does he do? He uses an illustration, a parable that entices David to pronounce his own condemnation. I mean, it is a brilliant approach if you think about it, because when it comes to the sins of others, we have 20-20 vision. And David is appalled as he listens to the story that the rich man and Nathan's story would take from a poor man, the only lamb he had. It was like a daughter to him. And he would give that one lamb when he had all kinds of sheep and lamb and other things he could have given to the stranger. He takes the one from this poor man and he gives it to the stranger. And David can't believe it. Nathan turns it around. He says in no uncertain terms, David, you are the and he continues, Nathan says, why have you despised the word of the Lord? Would that be the end of it right there? Yes, David is broken. David confesses. He says in 2 Samuel 12, David confesses. He says, I have sinned. But the woman shouldn't have been half-dressed like that out in public. <laughs> he didn't say that. He confesses, I have sinned, but you don't understand. I've been under a lot of stress lately. He doesn't say that. He says, I have sinned. Oh, but you don't know how hard it is to be a godly man in this world in which we live in today. I have sinned, but, but oh, I just can't help it. And it's, it's, it's my diet. It's my hormones. It's Uncle Billy's influence. None of that. What does David say? I have sinned against the Lord. No buts. And that's expanded upon in what we have in front of us this morning in Psalm 51. What we have here is the essence of true confession. David leads us in what true confession looks like. We have here in Psalm 51, I believe, a three-dimensional view of confession. The first dimension is to see our sin for what it is. To see our sin for what it is. The second dimension is to see God for who he is. And then the third dimension is to see what is at stake. First dimension, to see our sin for what it is. Second dimension, to see God for who he is. Third dimension, to see what is at stake. Let's look at the first dimension of true confession. It is to see our sin for what it is. Follow along with me as I read again verses 1 through 4 to see David's perspective on sin. Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I 
know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. That was evil in your sight. So that you are proved right when you speak, justified when you judge. What is David's perspective on sin? Here's a simple truth. That sin is serious. That sin is serious. He uses three different words here for his sin. He calls it transgressions. He says, blot out my transgressions, he says at the end of verse 1. And verse 3, he says, for I know my transgressions. What does transgression mean? Well, transgression is to rebel against the law, against divine law. See, sin defies God. That's why he says in verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned. Because David recognizes the seriousness of his sin and that his sin is ultimately against God. Now, that's not to say we have no need to ask for forgiveness from others, for we do. That's not to say we should underestimate the power of our sin to bring pain to others, for it does. But ultimately, if we're going to be about true confession, we have defied the ultimate, ultimately, a holy God of the universe. And if it's not there, it's not true confession. Because our offense is to God first and foremost. That will break us and grieve us. Not only does he refer to his sin as transgressions, but in verse 2 he speaks of it as iniquity. Wash away all my iniquity. And of course he speaks of his wrongdoing as sin, meaning missing the mark, not living up to God's standard. Transgressions, iniquity, sin. They're synonyms, yet the force of these three words placed together is meant to show the seriousness of sin. And we have to pause right here and ask ourselves, am I treating sin as some small thing? Because in a culture that has given nice and less offensive names to our sin, we can easily minimize the seriousness of it. Oh, we can call our sin a mistake. We can call it a little white lie. We can call our sin a little misstep. We can even say, that's just the way I am. We can give it all kinds of cute names, but that's not true confession. It's something else. It's not true confession. Years ago, preacher John Watson wrote a book called Respectable Sins. Respectable Sins. Interesting title. It captures how often we categorize certain sins, usually our own, as respectable and others as despicable. And while certain sins may carry a a greater consequence and, and, and may carry a particular stigma, all sin is a condemnation worthy of death to the sinner. Let's call it what God calls it. Because at the end of verse 4, David says what? So you are justified when you speak. You're blameless when you judge. What is David saying here? He's saying, I agree with you, Lord, as to what you say about sin. That is true confession, by the way. It is agreeing with God as to what he says about it. David says, for I know my transgressions. I 
No, I know. You know you're on the right track of true confession when you have no interest in blaming your spouse or blaming your kids or blaming your parents or blaming your sister or your brother or your boss or pastor so-and-so or church whatchamacallits. God, I know my transgressions. Do you notice the pronouns used in this confession? Don't, don't just gloss over that. He says, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Verse 3, my sin is always before me. A lot of me's and my's. A lot of personal pronouns. He's genuinely taking full responsibility. His goal isn't just to feel less guilty about it. Listen, if you're still making excuses for it, then you don't really see, what, see sin for what it is. Sin is serious. Is that how we see our sin? The first dimension of true confession is to see our sin for what it is. We're then in position to do only one thing, plead for God's mercy. And that brings us to the second dimension of confession, is to see God for who he is. To see God for who he is. Because not only is our view of sin critical to true confession, but so is our view of God. Our view of God, as it relates to our sin, will determine whether or not we guilt well. What does David know of God? Verse 1 again. He speaks of God's mercy, his unfailing love, and his great compassion. You see, no matter how stained we are, we can rest in God's unfailing love, his great compassion, and his mercy. The path to the mercy of God is paved with honest confession before God. If we are to guilt well, then it means we confess well. For he says in verse 6, Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. David knows that God isn't content with superficial words or superficial change. He isn't satisfied with some kind of outside cleanup. Go with me to verses 16 and 17 for a moment of the same psalm. Verse 16. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. God isn't interested in our going through some outward ritual while covering up inward reality. That's what he's saying. And if we aren't careful, and I say we, if we aren't careful, church attendance and church activities and church busyness can become the biggest cover-up for the sin in our lives. I must be honest about that. Is John Lennon, biblical scholar John Lennon? No. John Lennon astutely wrote, great words here, you, sh- you can shine your shoes and wear a suit. You can comb your hair and look quite cute. You can hide your face behind a smile. One thing you can't hide is when you're crippled inside. You can go to church and sing a hymn. 
Judge me by the color of my skin. You can live a lie until you die. One thing you can't hide is when you're crippled inside. What a terrible existence. Don't go through life that way. Are you living with past regrets? You say, I'm just going to take this to my grave. Are you holding on to some secret sin and trying to convince yourself you're okay? Max Lucado refers to guilt as a sack of stones. Sack of stones. He says, we take that sack of stones with us wherever we go. We take that sack of stones with us to work and to school. We take it with us to happy hour or to our counselor's office or to a weekend rendezvous. We even take it with us to church. In all these places, we're looking for relief of our guilt, but instead we take the sack that we brought in out the door with us, and we go through life sluggish, tired, and burdened. There in your, in your bag of guilt, he says, the pain of wasted years, wild living, and choices that continue to have repercussions. What have you noticed about that sack of stones? Is that bag starts to become heavy after a while. Where do we go with that guilt? Oh, we can't remove that guilt through therapy alone. We can't remove that guilt by well-intentioned resolutions. We can't remove that guilt by trying to replace it with happy thoughts. Guilt doesn't go away by clearing your history on your computer. Guilt doesn't go away by hitting your delete button. Guilt doesn't go away by simply saying, I don't want to think about it anymore. It doesn't even go away by going to church and singing your heart out on Sunday morning. Our view of God matters here. The only place we can go with our guilt is brokenness before God. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The only cure for our guilt is God. A view of sin is that it's serious. A view of God is that he's gracious, merciful, and wants something to happen deep within. Confession is the connection between our view of sin and our view of God. Let me say that again. Confession is the connection between our view of sin and our view of God. Because it's only as we honestly acknowledge our sin and plead for his forgiveness that we find a cure for our guilt. And like Pilgrim and Pilgrim's Progress, we can find relief of that giant burden and weight of sin we carry around on our back and we drop it at the cross. David's view of God drives him to bring his guilt to him, for he knows only God can do something about his sin. Only God can make him clean. Look at verse 7. He says, clean me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. What in the world is hyssop? Well, hyssop spoken of in Leviticus and Numbers. It refers to a small plant, which because of the way it was shaped, uh, could be kind of moved around and bent. It was pliable. And it could be used like a small brush. 
And the priest would, would take the hyssop and dip it into some blood and then sprinkle or, or brush the blood over a sacrifice or an offering. In another instance, the Israelites took hyssop, dipped it in the blood in the basin, and then brushed it on their doorstep. Cleanse me with hyssop is David's way of saying he expects his sin to be removed from him, and the penalty for his sin has been paid for by something or someone else besides him. In other words, David knows that only God can make him clean. That's it. God stands in as a priest and cleanses him from his sin and the penalty of sin. Only God, who is greater than our guilt, can do something about our guilt. There's only one thing that can be done with guilt, and that is to have it washed away. There's only one who can wash it away. It's only because, as the book of Hebrews tells us, Christ put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Because, loved ones, we deserve judgment. That's how serious sin is. Matter of fact, if God was just and only just, he would doom us forever, eternal separation from him, and he would be right in doing that. David knew, and all true confession knows, that if the Lord counted our sin against us, we are doomed. Psalm 130 Verse 3 says, if the Lord should mark our iniquities, who could stand? No one is the answer. If God dealt with us according to our sin, he would be just in doing so. Yet in his abundant mercy and unfailing love and his great compassion, he's made the way for us to be purged of our sin and free from our guilt. And Psalm 103, verse 10, it says, he has not dealt with us according to our sins. Good We need to guilt well. We need to guilt well. To guilt well is more than just feeling bad. Like the man who cheated on his IRS forms and taxes. He felt overwhelming guilt as a result. So several months later, he wrote a note to the IRS saying, I cheated on my forms. I put the wrong numbers down. I've been feeling guilty and I can't sleep at night. I'm sending a check for $1,500. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest. (laughs) It's not how it works. The cure for our guilt is not to simply feel less guilty. It isn't just to soothe our conscience. It's even more than feeling sorry. It's more than even being angry with ourselves. It's not about just beating up on yourself. To guilt well is to acknowledge our sin before a holy God by agreeing with him that he is right in what he calls it, turning away from that sin and living as a forgiven person. We need to allow that guilt we are experiencing lead us to a positive outcome, and that is forgiveness. Do you have that? Are you living in forgiveness? Are you living as a forgiven person? Are you taking your guilt to him? Kyle Manager, a non-Christian psychiatrist, had this to say. If I could convince my patients that they were truly forgiven, get this, if I could convince my patients that they were truly forgiven, 75% of them would never see me again. Non-Christian psychiatrist said that. 
He saw the importance of forgiveness. David understands his sin. He understands his God. He made the connection between his sin being serious and God being gracious by true confession. But he doesn't stop there. There's a third dimension of true confession, and that is to see what is at stake. To see what is at stake. Would David have chosen to have had his eye plucked out over giving in to his lust and having the consequences that he had to live with for the rest of his life. I would say, yes, he would have chosen that. He would have chosen that if he knew what was at stake. We need to see what is at stake. And if we live in this cover-up mode, we need to know what's at stake when we live there. We need to guilt well. There's something at stake when we don't. There are many things I could mention. I really just boil it down to two things that are at stake as we see here in this psalm. I had about four to eight. Be thankful I didn't bring all of those. Just two. First of all, what is at stake is our joyfulness in the Lord. Our joyfulness in the Lord. What was the cost of David's covering up of sin? He tells us in verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Do you see how miserable, and if you turn to Psalm 32 sometime and read that, you see how miserable David was under the discipline of God as he held on to his sin. He says here, his bones were crushed. But David's unconfessed sin was bad to the bone. I couldn't help myself there. As has been said, the older I get, the more my bones speak to me. That's true, isn't it? But bones here is a figure of speech, by the way. It's an expression that says the part is referring to the whole. It means his whole body suffered when he lived in cover-up mode. It was a miserable existence. And that's why he prays in verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. He wants a return of his joy that had been taken away because of his unaddressed guilt. David had been miserable for a while. And he longs for God's forgiveness to restore his joy. Because in true confession, joy returns. He longs to be restored to his God. He doesn't want to live in denial any longer. He doesn't want to end up in the same place ever again. And that's why he asked God in in verse 10 to give him a new heart. A new heart. You see, he doesn't just want to try harder the next time, which is often how we deal with sin, isn't it? I'm just going to try harder. No, he wants God to create something new within him. In addition, he asked God to, to renew a steadfast spirit within him. That's restoration language. The result of true confession that addresses the guilt inside is restoration. David longs to be changed at the core of his being so that his life will reflect praise and worship to the Lord. Because we find him saying in verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. When we have been transformed by his grace, we can't help but respond and praise. Your joyful walk revealed in a life full of praise to him is at stake when we live with unaddressed guilt. 
We refuse to confess our, uh, confess our joyfulness in the Lord is at stake. Secondly, secondly, our usefulness to others is at stake. Our usefulness to others is at stake. You don't sin in isolation. We're not a little island that when I sin, it doesn't affect anybody. Not true. The longer we go in cover-up mode, the more it affects the body of Christ. David doesn't just want to come on a clean slate here. He wants to go one step further. I love what he says here in verse 13. If I get all this, and this is what happens, and I do true confession, then, verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. He is compelled by the grace of God to proclaim the grace of God. He wants everyone to know what he himself went through, and the way back from such a miserable state to a place of joyful existence. He is so impacted by God's forgiveness that he can't keep that to himself. And I had to stop and say, Brian, are you? Are you that impacted by God's forgiveness because you see sin is serious? You deserve death. So impacted by that. I can't keep it to myself. That's David. Then I will teach transgressors your way. Sinners will turn back to you. David's desire, having gone through this, is to get the message out to others of a forgiving, gracious, merciful God. True confession and dealing with our guilt well is not only for our own benefits, but others' lives are at stake as well. Do you know where to go with your guilt? Are you trying to live in cover-up modes? I love this prayer of some Bible teacher and what he wanted to pray every single day. He said this. He said, Lord, don't let me sin successfully. Don't let me sin successfully goes on to say, that's my way of asking God to break my heart over sin, to convict me of it right away so my heart won't grow cold. It's tantamount to saying, don't let me enjoy sin. Allow me to get caught. Don't let my pride keep me from confessing it to you or to others. And you know what? God will answer such a prayer because it is his will that our hearts stay sensitive to, to sin. And that we don't just go, oh, well... And we grow cold. Lord, don't let me sin successfully. Have you blown it? Are you carrying around your sack of stones this morning, your bag of guilt that just gets heavier by the minute? The answer isn't to feel less guilty but to put your guilt somewhere where you know it's truly dealt with. Because you can be useful to the Lord again. You can know the joy of his salvation. How? Bring your baggage to him. He's already done everything that can be done to cure you of your guilt and blot out your sin. And I ask, why in the world, if that's the case, do I still carry it around? 
husband and wife, exhausted from traveling, entered a hotel carrying their suitcases and attache bags. A man in a uniform comes up to them and says, let me take those bags for you. The husband jumps in, no, 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 we can handle these bags ourselves. The truth of the matter is, he would love to give these bags to the young man, but he's ashamed to admit he doesn't have any cash in his pocket to tip the man. Again, the bellman asks, let me bring those bags to your room. You don't have to carry them. No thanks, the tired traveler answers again. The desk clerk sitting there hearing all of this says, please let the bellman do that. All the gratuities are added to your bill anyway. You don't have to tip him. Has she read my mind? The weary traveler thinks to himself. Have I carried these bags already for 50 yards when someone was there already paid in effect to handle them for me? Carrying our bags when someone is there paid to carry them for us is almost as incomprehensible as carrying baggage from the past, our unaddressed guilt, and untreated pain when someone has already paid to lift it off of me. That's exactly what happened at the cross. The hymn writer puts it well. Jesus paid it all. Whatever it is that you have in that bag of guilt that's weighing you down, will you give it to him? Will you put your trust in him if you've never done that? If you have done that and you're still carrying around the guilt, communion is all about Jesus, who has paid it all, who says, you don't have to carry the bags. I already did it for you. We have a place to go with our guilt. We don't have to carry the bag of guilt around because Jesus paid it all. You sing that refrain. You'll see it up here. It's very simple. Sing this with me. Jesus paid it all.